Good afternoon. My name is Nima Ardenland. I'm glad to be bringing another program from the Rishwana Region Radio Collective at KPFK Pacifica Radio 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and 93.7 FM in North San Diego County. Today's program and all KPFK programs are available online at kpfk.org. You can also listen to our archive shows going back 60 to 90 days. KPFK programs are available around the globe at kpfk.org in our archives. And don't forget that these programs are available through your generous contributions. KPFK is going through a fund drive right now, and we appreciate any support to uh, KPFK. These programs are only possible with the help from our listeners and only with your donations. And we always ask our listeners to support us. You can do that in our fund drives, or you can just go to kpfk.org or call the station 818-985-KPFK. Now, if you do this on a regular basis, become a sustaining member, member maybe we'll not have to have fund drives. And we do appreciate being on there and bringing the voices of the voiceless to you. Today, we'll be discussing our um, Swana region news with our own Swana collective member, Professor Hamoud Salahi, Associate Dean of International Education and Senior International Officer at uh, California State University, Dumanco's Hills. Hamoud, it's a long you... title name. It's a long title, man. We should. We, should... <laughs> we, 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 we like to give credit where it's due. You uh, uh, have been at this for a while, so have I. So, uh, yeah, we, we have a history here. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, um, this is uh, one of those situations that we're going to be covering the Swana region and uh, go around the news. And of course, uh, uh, we will be discussing uh, uh, another topic that's been on my mind for a while and, and everybody's mind, the war yeah. uh, between uh, uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, where Armenia and Azerbaijan are at it again. Unfortunately, mm. uh, the civilian death toll is rising and uh, there was supposed to be a ceasefire. We haven't uh, uh, heard too much about that yet and we are hoping for peace and a resolution to this conflict. Now, um, Hamoud, uh, before I speak with our guest, uh, um, can you uh, give us a, uh, an update on the situation in North Africa with the recent visit of the uh, defense ministers to the region, which was followed by the Spanish leadership's visit? I mean, what, what is that about? So it's very interesting. Uh, Northern Africa is becoming a very, very strategic uh, region uh, for the United States. So you have uh, just in the span, I mean, last week, uh, in span of two weeks or so, you have the leader of Africa uh, visiting the region. That will be Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. Before that, and I think we mentioned this on this program, uh, uh, the African uh, leaders, this is the African Command, Central Command, uh, which is established in Stuttgart, but now it doesn't have a home. So the United States is looking for a home in Africa for them. And then prior to that, a few, a few months back, uh, Pompeo uh, was there. 
And in addition, there are small uh, sort of visit or uh, low level visits uh, from uh, several key members from the United States. What's very interesting is that there are huge development in the Mediterranean Sea. This is uh, uh, basically uh, because uh, you have an interest of, of uh, Turkey, you have Russia is involved, and it's all evolved around the, uh, uh, the resources, oil and gas in the Mediterranean. And then you have the African conflict where, uh, with the Libyan conflict, where you have countries now position themselves uh, to uh, get some kind of privileges or rewards, and that's include military bases. So, uh, and the countries that are in line, of course, United States, uh, and the United States is set, or there, is a, there are some serious sort of uh, sources that are saying that's possibly uh, the location or the, the central command or Africa will be in Libya. So, uh, and, and that is a very, very significant. So what in this visit that culminated in the, uh, in the signing of two major agreements with, uh, with Tunisia and Morocco and some discussions about uh, countering, uh, what is it, and sharing intelligence in Algeria throughout all the three countries, but more so in Algeria combating terrorism, all of that, because it's a huge, huge problem for the region. You have uh, Turkey, for example, has a military base or got permission to have a military base uh, next, about 150 kilometers from Algeria, from, from the Algerian border. It's, it's very well connected uh, uh, to the three countries, another, located in a very strategic place. But no. most uh, Hamoud, is, is this the meeting that's going to be in Tunisia next week? I mean, is, is this related? Well, the meeting next week, that's, that, that meeting will be, uh, is supposed to be uh, all Libyans to sit uh, down. Just specifically to Libyans. Okay, I understand now. Yeah. So the problem with that meeting, uh, or I should not say the problem, the previous uh, movement uh, of countries, including Morocco, so there has been, and I'm not sure if Algeria will be included in this discussion or they were consulted, uh, but the meeting is intended to bring all uh, Libyan forces. Uh, it's Libyans by Libyans. There is a proposal by the Algerians uh, of national reconciliation, the same proposal that they have or the, that led to the, uh, uh, was it an accord in Mali where Algerians played a major role in that. And the United States is now revising that to extend it so it's, uh, it's more effective. Well, it's the same formula is, was discussed in Libya to learn from the Algerian experience. That's what the Libyan are saying. And basically getting together and talk about uh, how the system is gonna move forward. The key issue there is number one, a constitution. There was an agreement Skirat back in 2015 that agreement, Algerians were not part of it, but it was all, uh, they come together, they agreed on a constitution, elections, all of that, but then it collapsed. That led no, nowhere. And that's where we have now, currently you have actually two states. You have a st one Libyan state in the Eastern part of the country and another Libyan state in the, uh, in the other part. With all countries recognizing the, uh, what is it? The national accord, uh, 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 but that recognition has also its benefit. For example, the United States has uh, recognized it 
because they, they needed a, a government in Libya to tell them, come help us. So the intervention of the American in, in Libya uh, since 2016 was based, uh, was based on the invitation uh, that the National Accord government gave them. So that's why this, this government is being recognized. It has no value. It, it, at one point, now, it, now it's backed by Turkey, so it's bigger. It has a bigger share of the territories. It's challenging Haftar, and it's, it's, it's winning on the battlefield. Uh, but uh, neither Egypt, which supported Haftar, which supported the other side, uh, uh, was it, Egypt would not allow uh, the National Accord uh, forces led by Turkey uh, to take control of the entire country. So the meeting is supposedly, uh, in theory, is to come up with a solution. But so, you have to can, I, can I ask, who's in charge of the oil then? Or is it something that's divided up? Because, you know, I believe this, this war uh, and uh, the, 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 the conflict in uh, Libya started because of, the re because of the country's resources. We have talked about this. Yeah. So at one point, uh, well, initially, you know, it was a disaster. So tri what is that, tribes and, and uh, at one point was the Islamic, so-called Islamic State, Daesh, uh, or linked to Daesh. Interesting. Uh, controlled uh, the whole area. And they had uh, their territories, uh, they had territories under their control. Now, in 2016, the, with the help of the United States, uh, those t that uh, the area that was controlled by the Islamists, uh, terrorists, I should say, in this case, so understand correctly, the uh, the United States they were they, they were defeated. So if we stay just on that point, they they were defeated. So like all terrorists, what they do is that they they use other tactics. So they resorted. Oh, uh, during that time, up to that time, they were in control of the of the oil the oil fields, because they had some strategic areas that they controlled them. Later on, it was Haftar that came in, he controlled the areas, and until a few months ago, he released it to the, the, the National Accord uh, uh, for everybody. In other words, for the Libyan, uh, uh, the, uh, there was a formula that, that worked out. But at this point, it doesn't matter, every puppet, I'm sorry, every entity in Libya has somebody behind it. So for example, uh, Sayyaj, the National Accords uh, government, is backed by Turkey. So Turkey expects some deals, and they are doing deals. They have signed a lot of economic deals with, 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 with Libya. Egypt is backing Haftar, they too, or the, the Libyan National Army. They too have their own interest, and they too uh, sort of uh, are sort of waiting to get something out of it. So, and then you talk about France, you talk about Italy, you talk about uh, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, all these major players have a, have a big, big say in this national, in this meeting, and next week in Tunisia should it happen. Uh, well, do you, do you expect this to, um, uh, you know, this meeting to resolve the conflict? I mean, is, is that even a possibility at this point? I, I, I think for, I, I'm not sure it will happen. I, I, I think we're too soon. Uh, what's happening is a sense where United States and, and the bigger countries now are thinking about managing the conflict 
more than uh, was it resolving the problem. In other words, they have some serious issues about the division of Libya. And they, 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 the only way they could do that is really by sort of start to, uh, they could not do it through wars because, you know, the, no winner, Haftar was not able to win the country. So now we're at a stalemate. So the idea is, is to try to manage this stalemate until something comes up. The Libyan leadership, the opposition, uh, is not equipped with the tools. Uh, they may reach an agreement, but just in, in the past, the execution is the most important thing. Well, we have to come back to that. Now, yeah. um, one other thing uh, that comes into mind, Hamoud, is that the Mufti of Al-Azhar, uh, oh, yeah. that, that's, that's the equivalent, equivalent of the Vatican to the Sunni Muslims in, uh, in yeah. Egypt. Uh, the Mufti is like the Pope, right? Apparently, yeah, yeah, statement saying that to help our listeners to get an idea, yeah, is a religion of peace and that a few terrorists can speak on its behalf. Well, he was attacked by a few. So, yeah, you know, it's 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 a very interesting story. Here is a guy, yeah. Because, you know, this actually dovetails into uh, my next segment uh, about Nagorno-Karabakh and what Turkey is doing by supporting Azerbaijan. I don't want to interrupt you and get into that conversation. We have our guests coming up. Uh, we'll discuss yeah. that. But, no, I, I, heard, I heard you had a good guest. So, so give our listeners so, a little bit of a background about Al-Azhar. I mean, it's yeah. one of the pillars of the... Uh, Islamic education. Uh, as yeah, well. and, and a lot of, so in the old days in Northern Africa during the French colonization, there were two areas, two locations where, uh, you know, you get knowledge, you get university level type of education and religious studies. That one was in Tunisia, the other one in Egypt. So to reach the Egypt, you have an Azhar, this is a, a center, a religious center, where, you know, well-known uh, religious scholars from Egypt, from all over, it's the center of, of, uh, of it defines itself as the center of, of Islamic studies, if you want. So at the top of the, of the, of the, uh, uh, of the Al-Azhar is someone who is known Mufti. Now, in ideal terms, uh, the Mufti, this person in charge, uh, and Mufti is somebody who tells how to uh, interpret. Let's say you, you, you go to the, I mean, in, in, in Christianity, you go to the church to ask the priest uh, for forgiveness or God to forgive them or something along those lines. So the priest will help you or guide you uh, uh, or, or teach you or tell you uh, how to enter, how God or how the book interpret uh, a mistake he made. The Mufti is that kind of a role they have. So th this is a person uh, who gives a ruling. Uh, and in Arabic, it comes from fara, which means, you know, uh, gave advice, recommendations. So he's very well versed. It's like an Ayatollah, except it's a different brand of Islam. So, so but in, in the case of Egypt, uh, 
for years, uh, the, the custom has been uh, for the president to nominate this person. So there is... Well, for, forgive me for asking this, but uh, maybe my ignorance about uh, this. Listen, but, you are not ignorant. No, no, but no, no, this, this is actually a question I don't know about uh, that I would like yeah. to ask you. It's may, maybe there is some clarification. It, with, with Sunni Muslims, unlike Shiites, yeah. um, they, there isn't just one um, pope. There are several popes, if I can yeah. say Yeah, okay. so we can... This, the, the Shia have a hierarchy. Okay. So, so the hierarchy is that you have sort of four levels of, of people who have religious uh, knowledge. They have at the bottom, you call them ayatullah. These are, these are individuals who have uh, some knowledge in Islam, the Shia brand. And, uh, you know, they could be one of the, let's say, if you're a daughter or a son of uh, a son, I should say, of Ayatollah, well, it puts you in Ayat because you're exposed to a religi uh, religious environment, so you know more than the average person. Sometimes after that is what you call them, uh, the Hajjatullah. Uh, uh, mm. And then Ayatollah. Hajjatullah is like, you know, I always make this uh, example in my classes when I used to teach. Ayatollah is somebody with a bachelor's degree. Ayatollah mm -hmm. is a master's degree. Mm -hmm. and Ayatollah is a PhD. The difference between, you know, Ayatollah, someone with a bachelor's degree, they get the information and all that stuff. Hajjatullah is at the master level. They have the language they have the background, but they cannot issue an edict, a fatwa. Only Ayatollah has. So the moment you, uh, uh, was that, uh, in, in order to issue edicts or ruling about matters of Islam, you have to be Ayatollah in, in, in Shia. In Sunni, you don't have that because the idea is that you correct it directly to God. So what you have, you have an imam in your neighborhood, somebody who leads prayer or so, who does, who knows, a, or who is a leader in the religious clerks, uh, clergy. Uh, and so that's where the connection. So just like Mecca, where you go and pray, and, uh, uh, but the, the sources of religious scholarship become a valuable source because they, they, you have edicts uh, come in from them. They are very active. But it's not the same relationship that Muslims have in Sunni. Sunni Muslims have with the Mufti, the Azhar, uh, than what Iranians have with the Ayatollah. I mean, Ayatollah, when you talk about Ayatollah Sistani, for example, in Iraq, it was Sistani who said, I mean, everybody was waiting when the United States invaded the country, whether they should vote. When, because the idea is that this is this vote and during the elections is brought by a foreign power. So it was Sistani who comes out, the Ayatollah Sistani who comes out and said, it's okay to vote, go and vote. Interesting. They have that much power and they have a lot of money. I mean, you guys, I mean, we went to the wrong profession, Nima. Well, you went to the good one. <laughs> Maybe. <But>, yeah. <laughs> Maybe yours is. But I should not make fun of, of uh, 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 those kind of things. But. The, the, the dynamics are different. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that was a distinction that I always was yeah. wondering about. Now, so to get back to the back to your to question. Azhar and the Mufti. Uh, so it's very, very interesting. 
in, in, in normal times or you know in other places he has he said nothing that we we don't we don't say we all say you know you know you we should distinguish so there are islam you know terrorists should not speak on behalf of islam but he made that statement it created an issue uh, for the uh, uh, what do you call it the radicals or the uh, the uh, uh, now we, you know those who interpret islam differently and the the issue is is basically uh, the idea whether Islam toler, toler, uh, is tolerant of terrorism. Uh, and the issue came out as if, can you use violence to get rid of uh, people who are anti-Muslim? That's why the, the, the other side, uh, and, and what's funny is that it's been brought up and it's been sort of highlighted it shouldn't be. I think it's, it reminds me of my days in, in, in Gulf News when we, there is nothing happening in the world. And I was on the editorial committee that writes the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the editorial of the newspaper. So every day we would meet and pick a topic, what to write about, what, how, what can the newspaper uh, say about the event of the day. Well, you know, there are days when, you know, the news is dry. There is no major things. So there are four of us uh, at the table of the editorial committee. We look at each other and say, you know, what did the United States do? It was always, when in doubt, go what, see what the United States is doing abroad and write about it and critique it. The United States, uh, uh, you know, is big, so you don't get any problems with it. The same thing with this, with, with this issue is, I think there was a, uh, it was made too much of it uh, for, for public consumption. Other than that, uh, I think what the Mufti said is very well in context, what everybody knows, and it should not be a controversy. A controversy. Interesting. Now, uh, the other piece of news that we wanted to, um, to talk about, the, the normalization of uh, relations with Israel, you know, Bahrain and UAE, uh, what's next? Uh, how are things going? So it's very, very fascinating, you know, somebody who, I mean, you and I and a lot of our listeners and, and, and team, Swana, we all follow the news and we all sort of read into it. But there is a major transformation of how the, uh, some Arab countries, not sort of to, uh, some Arab countries have embraced Israel. So what used to be a sort of, uh, not at this speed. I mean, we have had people, uh, scholars who are very supportive of Israel and some uh, and, and praising the Israeli government. They go to distance uh, to say that Israel never colonized Palestine. I mean, it's that kind of language uh, that doesn't appeal to anybody. I mean, these are facts. You can't sort of deny it. But the latest is this idea, which is really a dangerous idea. We have to think about it seriously. Uh, Gulf News reported, uh, and it's again to make this normalization process go as normal as possible, uh, that Israelis are thinking about having East Jerusalem be the next Silicon Valley uh, in Israel. And it will follow uh, the Dubai model. 
and you have some you have some enthusiasts who are who see this as a great idea. The problem is sound. You, you see that uh, East Jerusalem. You think about you know uh, the Palestinian state in East Jerusalem, but you really, if you follow the politics of Israel, you have to understand what do they mean by East Jerusalem? Oh. Areas are we talking about? So they they want to model East Jerusalem as another Dubai. Yeah, and Silicon and, and the Silicon Valley have it, make it as a Silicon Valley. Let me just take a minute and try and digest that. There are several other places that want to model and become Dubai in 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 that region. Yeah, one of them very close to my heart. Uh, this was being touted in in uh, in Nor in southern Kurdistan in Iraqi Kurdistan. Yeah, 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 yeah. talking about that. Yeah, we will yeah. be the next Dubai, but of course, you know, with all the. Uh, Corruption over there. Yeah. <laughs> there's a couple of other places. Yeah, and and it's 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 fascinating. I mean, the title that Gulf News had, uh, Arab uh, Arab East Jerusalem can become regional tech, uh, of research and, and development hub, and that's you know Silicon Valley category will come later, uh, but that's how they look at it. That's how, where they are. So a lot of a lot of it sort of is happening in the context of that normalization. But slowly, slowly, uh, there is a movement uh, to make sort of uh, more, uh, uh, to include more Israeli materials in textbooks. And that will bring the issue of where do you fit Palestine? How do you treat it? So there are some serious discussions, uh, some serious steps uh, that uh, uh, Palestinians and every, every lover of uh, Palestine might find uh, a bit disturbing. Uh, and that's where the trend is, is, is moving, yeah. Well, well thanks for that. And um, now, well, Listen, now. I, need, I need to ask you about your next guest. So what's happening with, uh, you said there is some ceasefire. Uh, are we? Uh, yeah, yeah, this is, this, is, this is very good news if it actually uh, comes to fruition. Apparently, Russia intervened. Uh, brought all the uh, foreign ministers and they signed a deal. Now, whether this holds and actually we'll see peace in that region, that's um, to be applauded, I guess. Uh, but Russia, uh, you know, speaking of Russia, they are uh, not taking sides. Well, they, they have a relationship with both. And exactly. Then exactly. There is there is other issues, Turkey. Well, Turkey, we have talked about that, you know, with yeah. uh, starting with their atrocities in, in Syria, uh, with the Kurds in southern uh, Kurdistan, in northern Iraq, uh, constant uh, meddling in, in Libya, uh, yeah. now uh, uh, Cyprus and uh, threatening Greece. Uh, yeah. I, I believe this is part of uh, Turkish expansionism. Uh, I, I think they want to get a foothold. And we were talking about the Mufti of Al-Azhar or Egypt. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. there are Muftis everywhere. Yeah, you have Mufti in Azhar and Serbia yeah. and yeah. yeah. So uh, I think Erdogan wants to bring back, uh, uh, that's my personal opinion, he wants to back, bring back the glory of his uh, 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 Ottoman Empire and, and uh, Turkish nationalists are actually touting that. And he is starting. No, it, 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 it's fascinating. He's a dangerous person as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And a lot of it, what they're doing, when, if we go back just to what we talked earlier about, I mean, a lot of these wars are led by Syrian refugees. 
Exactly. Yeah. So there are about the numbers in Northern Africa, about 14,000 of them. And now we're wondering what's going to happen to them. I remember what happened after the, the end of the Afghan war, where you have the stateless people uh, in, in Peshawar, uh, in, I believe in 1988, where you know, the State Department, the CIA was a big supporter of them, Mujahideen, and they were fighting exactly. against yeah, and then when they won, and including Al Qaeda, and when they won, uh, United States said, "You know, you're on your own." So their countries uh, refused to get them back. The United States did not support them. What they want? I mean, uh, Osama bin Laden. Uh, ended up in 9/11. Yeah, and and ended up in by by the way in Sudan, and in, in Sudan, when he issues uh, his famous fatwa. Uh, uh, to go against the, uh, was it, uh, the non-believers and the non-Muslims. It's, it's the fear that will happen in Northern Africa too. I know you want to go and talk about well, No, our, our uh, next... It's okay, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> okay. our, uh, our next uh, guest is Mehran Tumajan, Western Region Director of Armenian Assembly of America. Armenian Assembly of America was founded in 1972 and headquartered in D.C. in Washington. Uh -huh. The Armenian Assembly of America is the largest nonpartisan Armenian American advocacy organization in the U.S. And since its establishment, the Armenian Assembly of America endeavors to promote public awareness of the Armenian issue. Now, for this, we'll be going to our next guest. And Hamoud, thank you very much for being with us. Welcome, Iman. Mehran, welcome to our show. Thank you, Lima. It's good to see you. Thank you for having me on again. Thanks for being with us again. And as always, we want to talk to you uh, about the issues of that region, the Swana region, and in particular, the Nagorno-Karabakh war, which uh, Turkey is uh, bringing on the people of Armenia. As with uh, everyone else, we are very worried about this situation. Innocent lives are uh, being uh, uh, lost, and uh, we... Uh, our hearts, uh, our thoughts are with the Armenians and, of course, the innocent Azerbaijani population as well. And uh, one of the things that I primarily wanted to talk to you about is that as individuals, as residents of uh, Southern California, what is it that we can do to stop this war, these, these aggressions? Uh, so, Great question. Uh, mind, uh, please uh, tell us a little bit about the history of this conflict, uh, and I'll start uh, listening to you. Thank you. Thank you, Nima. Uh, this is an existential uh, threat that Armenia and Artsakh uh, faces right now, the people of Artsakh in Armenia. Uh, it's existential because uh, of numerous factors. Uh, uh, the, the government of Turkey, uh, by way of uh, Turkish military officers, uh, at least 150 of them uh, in command and control positions. Uh, in addition to lethal weapons, uh, Bayraktar PD-2 uh, drones uh, and uh, missile systems, uh, in addition to the provision of jihadist mercenaries from Syria, Libya, uh, and uh, recently Afghanistan, Mujahideen. Uh, this, this confluence of, uh, of, uh, of power projection uh, uh, capabilities by Turkey uh, is, uh, it, it really needs to be checked. Uh, it, it, is, uh, it is not just uh, simply a war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, akin to what, what uh, we witnessed in the early 1990s. Uh, it is not simply the four-day war of uh, 2016. 
which we also witnessed, uh, and I remember being on your show at the time and discussing the four-day war and its uh, repercussions. Uh, this is this is something uh, uh, a lot more uh, serious uh, because because that uh, a Turkish uh, of the Turkish direct presence uh, uh, in this conflict, uh, and and in many ways it's it's uh, it's a manifestation of Erdogan uh, trying to project power uh, uh, throughout the region. Uh, we've we've seen him uh, you know uh, take advantage of uh, America's abdication uh, uh, from. Uh, security responsibilities in northern Syria uh, and pull out of uh, a serious number of uh, American troops from northern Syria, uh, other than uh, the area where the oil fields are located. Uh, and uh, certainly this uh, America's uh, uh, actions, uh, the administration's actions were a slap in the face to our Kurdish uh, partners and, and allies uh, uh, who, uh, without whose support, uh, it would have been uh, much more difficult to defeat ISIS. Uh, and certain Al-Qaeda uh, terrorist groups also operating in northern Syria. Uh, but we rolled out the red carpet for Erdogan, and we allowed him to, to be the, the proverbial policeman uh, in northern Syria. And, and, uh, and as we know, in Idlib province and in Afrin, uh, uh, there, there's a heavy Turkish military presence and, uh, and, and a lot of uh, other, other influences, uh, Turkish influences in the region as well. And I'll get to that in a second, uh, what those other influences are. Certainly, we see the power projection in Libya uh, with, uh, with uh, Erdogan uh, supporting uh, 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 one part of the, uh, the, the part of the, the jihadi faction, that is, the jihadi, right, faction. The jihadi yeah. faction, uh, uh, and, and, and certainly uh, much to, to the ira, uh, ira of uh, Russia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates, uh, and uh, in general Haftar's faction as well, uh, which, which, which rules part of the country. Uh, so. And then we see uh, you know, Erdogan's uh, uh, machinations in the Eastern Mediterranean, for example, uh, over energy resources that uh, clearly are demarcated in Greece and Cyprus's uh, uh, areas of, 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 uh, of ownership. Uh, so, so he's testing, he's testing uh, many powers in the Eastern Mediterranean as well. Uh, and certainly France uh, has, uh, has uh, been involved in that quagmire. Uh, so, so now, uh, as if that's not enough, uh, he, he has uh, helped uh, Aliyah, the Aliyah dictatorial, dynastic dictatorial regime, open up a new front. And this one is in the South Caucasus region uh, with uh, the uh, unprovoked attacks on the Armenians of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, of, of the Republic of Artsakh, as Armenians call it. Uh, and uh, it's led to uh, uh, devastation uh, uh, akin to uh, Sarajevo, the type of devastation that you remember uh, that your uh, listeners, I'm sure, remember of Sarajevo. Uh, Artsakh is, 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 a, is a small population. I mean, there's... there's Artsakh has 100, roughly 150,000 people. 1,000 people, and it's going up against Turkey, a population of 80 plus 83 million. Uh, with, Azerbaijan's uh, 10 million. Azerbaijan with 10 million, and, and unfortunately... And now a few thousand, a few thousand jihadist, jihadist mercenaries yeah, as well now. Yeah, I mean, he's exporting what he did in, uh, in Syria... I mean, I personally believe that the Turkish uh, uh, war uh, on Syria is what led up to this Syrian conflict and caused uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths. And they, they were the main. I mean, they were the main. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, there's there's ample documented evidence, uh, not the least of which are the excellent studies done by the Human Rights Center at Columbia University under the. Uh, 
directorship of David Phillips, uh, and they've come up with two very serious studies on, uh, on Turkey's relationship with ISIS. Uh, one is specifically on uh, the oil trade uh, and, uh, and Turkey's uh, uh, specifically... Uh, it, it is documented. The, the, the connections are there documented. Uh, right. Benefited documented with a lot of media. Turkish with a lot of Turkish sources as well, Turkish media sources, some of which have been shut down uh, uh, since uh, by the Erdogan regime. Uh, and then there's a second, there's a second serious study uh, that, uh, that is not oil related, but it's, it, it has to do with the funneling of, of uh, mercenaries and terrorists into uh, northern Iraq, into Syria, uh, 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 to, to, to fight with ISIS. Uh, so this is, uh, this is very problematic. Uh, this, this kind of behavior, um, uh, as, as, as I just mentioned, you know, was, was very, very... Uh, uh, a NATO member. Uh, I mean, that, that's and, and we knew it. We knew it. The West knew what Turkey was up to, uh, and we gave them a pass uh, with respect to northern Iraq and, and northern Syria and the devastation that uh, that uh, was caused there, aided and abetted by the by the Erdogan regime. And we're seeing it now uh, with the uh, with the recruitment uh, by uh, a private Turkish security firm called Sadat S A D A T. Which is which is uh, owned and managed by General Adnan Hanriverdi, uh, a very close friend of Erdogan, who sits in on cabinet meetings uh, in Turkey. Uh, he's a he's a deposed general. Uh, used to, used to used to uh, have a lot of influence. Uh, the Turkish general staff uh, ended up uh, uh, deposing him, uh, but he has uh, somehow uh, managed to, uh, to create this private security firm, which uh, which is recruiting, uh, you know. Uh, Syrians uh, who are desperate, who are many of whom are in desperation, they're in need of uh, of money. They're the, the many of them are their families. The, they they don't know where they are. There is right. news of uh, uh, these mercenaries being uh, told that you're going somewhere else and ending up in Azerbaijan in the front lines. Obviously, you mentioned. Uh, uh, other uh, jihadis uh, from uh, Afghanistan. Also recruited from Libya and now Afghanistan. And the Afghanistan connection is interesting because the, the, excuse me, the recruiting uh, of the agreement uh, between the Erdogan regime uh, and Gilbuddin Hekmatyar, uh, who is an Afghan warlord uh, and head of the Islamic party of Afghanistan, uh, that agreement was made last week uh, and, and we've seen uh, flights uh, emanating from uh, from Kandahar to Baku, uh, so we suspect that some some Mujahideen have already flown uh, to Azerbaijan. What is worrisome uh, is the fact that uh, that Dibadin Hekmatyar uh, has not learned his lesson uh, in the sense that in 1993, uh, the same Hekmatyar sent uh, sent uh, Mujahideen uh, to fight uh, during the the, uh, the 1991-94. Uh, war uh, in Artsakh, and uh, and many of the Mujahideen were sent back home in body bags, uh, and uh, so clearly he has not learned his lesson uh, that that fighting proxy wars uh, in areas uh, uh, and terrain. I don't believe is, they care. They they to them it's just resources and money to be made. They, they, these people right. have no scruples about uh, killing their own people, let alone. Uh, anybody else um, you know it, it's proven uh, that uh, you know the Azeri government with all its uh, human rights violations uh, the use of cluster bombs they're using cluster bombs on civilian populations now, uh, that 
there's a treaty on cluster bombs that that you know that prevent people from using it on on, exactly. uh, on civilians. And no. the Israelis are are flaunting their use of it, uh, uh, you know, in contravention to to a treaty which they have not signed. By the way, they have not signed onto that international treaty uh, no, to ban cluster bombs. I wanted to ask you about the little bit, little bit of a background. Why is there even a conflict there? Uh, yeah. I wanted to know if. Uh, uh, what is it that they, the Azeris are claiming to? They, yeah, obviously Nagorno-Karabakh has a Turkish name, but in reality, that was Artsakh. They changed right. the name and they claim it now. And throughout the, the Soviet history, it was handed over, etc., to uh, the Azerbaijani administration. But it is an Armenian area. Absolutely. Uh, Artsakh, uh, Artsakh has been populated by Armenians even before the, the age of Christ. Uh, uh, Strabo and Xenophon were talking about Armenians in Artsakh in their writings. Uh, Artsakh uh, is one of 15 uh, uh, provinces of, of the Armenian highlands, uh, of, of, of what's known as, as, as uh, uh, the Armenian plateau. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's, you know, it has thousands of churches and monasteries and, and one of the oldest educational complexes at, at the, uh, the town of Amaras, uh, it, that complex dates back to the fourth century. Uh, the founder of Armenia's alphabet, uh, Saint Mesrop, uh, actually taught at Amaras, this educational complex, which is in, uh, has been preserved fairly well uh, over the centuries um, and is a is a tourist site right now. Uh, you know, one one cannot one cannot deny the Armenian presence uh, in in Artsakh uh, dating back centuries. Uh, but the Azerbaijanis uh, and the and, uh, and Turks uh, certainly make efforts to do so. By way of destruction, uh, uh, just like Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, there was another autonomous region, a former Soviet autonomous region known as Nakhichevan. Uh, similar to Nagorno-Karabakh, Joseph Stalin gifted both of these regions to Soviet Azerbaijan. Uh, this was part of his uh, denationalization policy. Uh, uh, you know, it was a brutal policy where he he uh, he did not want uh, there to be clear majorities of one nation. Um, uh, in, in a given nation itself. Uh, so he handed, gifted uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, which became uh, eventually in the 1930s became an autonomous region within Soviet Azerbaijan. He gifted that to the, to, to the Azerbaijanis and the Azerbaijanis tried to dilute uh, the, the population that, and change the demographics of Nagorno-Karabakh, which before the handover by Stalin was 95% Armenian. And then in the Soviet era, uh, it, it, it dwindled down to somewhere in the, in the range of 75 to 77 percent Armenian. Um, uh, in contrast, in Nafichevan, uh, an area that, that had a very predominant Armenian population before the Stalin handover, by the, by the time of uh, the, uh, the, the Soviet Union's dissolution, Nafichevan's population of Armenians had dwindled down to less than 10 percent. Uh, and, and then when the war started, uh, in, the, in the early 1990s between Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, every Armenian from Nakhichevan uh, fled, escaped to Armenia, uh, and, uh, uh, and it became solely Azerbaijani. Not a single Armenian uh, lives in Nakhichevan. And what's worse is that it's uh, been heavily documented uh, with, with, uh, uh, with deep analysis uh, in the Guardian newspaper of, of, of England, the destruction uh, of uh, thousands of Armenian cross stones, hachkars uh, as we call them, in uh, in uh, uh, Julfa, the, the town of Julfa in Nakhichevan, 
it's a scorched earth type of destruction, which the Azerbaijanis did in the, in the mid 2000s. Uh, there's nothing left of it. This was a, this was a cemetery with, with thousands of cross stones on graves. There's nothing left of it. There's documented evidence of it. Like I said, The Guardian, Hyper Allergic, which is, a, which is another publication, have written about it extensively. Um, and, and this just goes to show the, uh, the, the, the state-sponsored policy of Azerbaijan and Turkey I, I believe to erase every trace, erase every trace of Armenian heritage. So it's not enough that you know killing Armenians. This this, uh, this place, erasing their heritage is, this is place part of the policy. Erdogan's uh, uh, plans. I believe he's trying to bring back the Ottoman uh, glories. I mean, vis-a-vis -a, -vis, uh, a, a, a republic of Turkey, which has you know documented uh, human rights violations, the, the highest number of journalists, and obviously killing dissidents. Uh, uh, we have talked about this. Hiran Dink, uh, uh, and a prominent Armenian journalist, was assassinated uh, a decade or so ago. Uh, I don't exactly remember what year, but uh, I did cover it on actually in, in 2007. Yes, yes. And um, but no, my question to you is is actually twofold. I, I know we are running out of time, but I first of all, I want to know uh, if there is anything we can do here uh, to, st to put a stop to this war, and then tell us about the the the, the Russian. Uh, uh, you know, it, it was announced uh, already the ceasefire. <laughs> ceasefire. What what has happened since? Yeah, so I'll start with the question on the ceasefire. Uh, so, uh, so Moscow uh, on on Friday summoned the foreign ministers to to Moscow, uh, foreign ministers of Azerbaijan and Armenia. They were there. They had about a ten hour meeting, and uh, and the three three parties, and, uh, headed by Foreign Minister Lavrov of Russia, have decided to uh, to have a ceasefire uh, that would last up to seventy two hours. Uh, and during this period, uh, there would be an exchange of the deceased on, on both sides. Uh, there, uh, and the International Committee of the Red Cross would handle that. Um, there, there would also be a ceasefire, um, uh, and and then there would be, uh, you know, one of the provisions was uh, deeper talks uh, for something uh, more stable and permanent, uh, uh, and, and leading to the negotiations. Well, the fact of the matter is, uh, on the, in, the, in the run up to the the time that the ceasefire was supposed to be set, which was 12 noon. Uh, uh, on Saturday, uh, uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan time, 12 noon. In the run-up to that, the Azerbaijanis continued uh, to, to lay waste uh, cities like Stepanakert, the capital of, of Artsakh, uh, and other towns uh, with heavy, heavy uh, strikes, uh, missile strikes, uh, and drone strikes. Um, and then, uh, in, in, you know, with impunity, uh, they, they, they stopped at, from 12 to 12.05, five minutes, and then with impunity, con continued with, with uh, uh, very, very severe strikes after 12.05, after literally five minutes of pause, uh, they, they tried to make an incursion with, uh, with uh, Turkish special forces, uh, roughly 200 black wearing, uh, black uh, garb wearing Turkish special forces tried to enter the town of Hadrut. Uh, they uh, unfortunately were successful in killing four Armenian uh, villagers uh, who, had, who had not uh, left uh, their homes, uh, as many, many Armenians have done, those who are close to the front lines. Um, they killed a, a mother and her disabled son, for example, in cold blood in their own home uh, and, and two other villagers. Uh, and this all happened yesterday uh, on, sa on Saturday, the day of the ceasefire. 
so so much for the ceasefire. This was this was exactly clearly, what the, the same playbook as Syria. I mean, which yeah, which, this was which, what they and, did. And, and this was and this I I I know that this was uh, Ankara's way of telling Moscow. Uh, you know, we don't appreciate the fact that you summoned the foreign ministers and, and went, went through this process of a ceasefire. We don't agree with it, and hence we are going, going to continue the missile strikes uh, uh, on all of your major cities and towns, which they did yesterday uh, on Martuni and Martagert and Hadrut and Askeran and Shushi, and of course on Stepanagert. Stepanagert, the capital, is, is a reminiscent of Sarajevo of the early 1990s. Uh, uh, buildings, uh, large and small, uh, infrastructure, hydroelectric plants, uh, electric uh, base stations, uh, communications towers, everything has been laid to waste. Uh, it, is, it is very dangerous to live there uh, because uh, there, there are so many electric lines down. Uh, it, it's just, uh, it, it, is, it is a wasteland. And what's worse is that they, uh, earlier this week, they also uh, uh, attacked uh, one, of the, one of the oldest Armenian churches and one of the most noble uh, Armenian churches, the Church of the Holy Savior in Shushi, two separate attacks. After the first attack, uh, journalists went to the church to check on uh, Armenian uh, women and children who were sheltering in the basement of the church. They went to check in on them, and while the journalists were in the church, the second attack took place. Uh, three journalists uh, uh, were hurt. Uh, three, three Russian journalists who were there inside the church were injured, one seriously injured, but his life was saved. By, uh, by doctors in Artsakh. Um, this is just devastating what's happening. And, uh, and I call upon listeners of, of, of your program, Swan uh, 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 Radio, to, uh, to take action. You can take action by visiting the Armenian Assembly of America's website, uh, www.aaainc.org. Again, www.aaainc.org. You'll see right on the main page, there's an action alert. It's for House Resolution 1165. It's a bipartisan resolution which, uh, which condemns Azerbaijan uh, and denounces Turkey's uh, direct interference in the conflict and, and, uh, and, and pushes for uh, negotiations under the, the tripartite uh, uh, chair, uh, the, the chairmanship of the OSCE Minsk Group. The OSCE Minsk Group, uh, which consists of uh, three co-chairs, Russia, the United States and France have been uh, uh, sponsoring uh, negotiations for several several years now, involving Armenians and Azerbaijanis, uh, and uh, and we want we certainly want to go back to the negotiating table and put an end to this violence, uh, which is uh, which is wreaking havoc on civilians on both sides, as well as uh, on, on soldiers. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And no, and, uh, and, and the, the fact that the jihadist mercenaries, uh, according to the uh, Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, uh, which, which publishes uh, statistics uh, regularly, uh, well over a hundred uh, jihadist mercenaries, uh, Syrians, Syrian men, uh, 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 have been thrown back, deceased, uh, back to the back to their families, uh, and and it just, you know, the, the question. Hey, Erdogan's expansionism is using these people as as cannon fodder, uh, right. because he knows right. if he uses his own uh, soldiers or Turkish soldiers and they come back in body bags, he's going to be accountable for starting Absolutely. another conflict uh, from, uh, from uh, uh, Cyprus, uh, uh, threatening Greece, uh, uh, obviously the Kurds in northern Syria. Uh, this is the, the one-year anniversary of U.S. abandonment of the Kurds in Syria. And uh, this, this Turkish government, this, this Turkish military, which is the second largest in, 
in NATO is going against a nation of three million. Uh, I think uh, this is something that uh, Turkey has got to be kicked out of NATO. That's 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 I've been saying that for uh, decades now. At the very least, at the very least, uh, we should we should pull out our air assets from the Incirlik Air Base. In, As Americans, in, in, in we should not empower these atrocities. Yeah, at the very least, we should we should look for alternatives. As the German uh, uh, Air Force has done, Germany's pulled out of uh, of uh, Incirlik a few years ago. They moved most of their air assets to Jordan. Uh, we should we should be following suit. Uh, there's no need, especially, to have tactical nuclear warheads. As as we do, uh, and the New York Times has written about this uh, uh, extensively, no need to have those uh, on Turkish soil any longer. Now, tell us about some of the community. I know you're running out of time, Aaron. Uh, right. We, we, have a, we have a large uh, uh, victory march and rally uh, on Sunday, October 11th, today. And this is going to be starting at Pan Pacific Park at the corner of Beverly and Fairfax. Uh, and we're going to walk all the way to the the Turkish consulate. They have a new address, which is in the city of Beverly Hills. So we're going to be walking uh, up Wilshire Boulevard, which will be closed off uh, until we get to the, the consulate. Um, there will be a heavy uh, LAPD and Beverly Hills PD presence, certainly, uh, as we expect thousands of, of people to join us. And uh, and and uh, we'd love for uh, our friends listening uh, on Swana Radio uh, to to join us. Uh, we, we'd love to see you there. Uh, this this is this is a march uh, for victory because uh, thus far thus far uh, you know the Armenian the Armenians of Artsakh uh, and, and Armenians from Armenia soldiers uh, who are there now as as volunteers uh, they are defending their homeland they're, and they're doing it at the cost of, of lots of lots of young young Armenian lives but they are they have been successful uh, every major push every major push that's happened using the jihadist mercenaries, using Turkish special forces, for example, have failed. Uh, and, uh, and it's just a matter of time, and, and we're hoping soon that this No, this, we need a end. ceasefire, we need a lasting peace, and we need uh, Turkey Absolutely. stopped. Uh, Absolutely. As I say, you know, if it comes to it, Turkey should be boycotted for all these atrocities that they have committed against Agreed. every one of their neighbors. At the very least, we need to sanction. The U.S. needs to sanction Turkey. There's many reasons to do so not the least of which is the atrocities happening in northern Syria and now in Artsakh, but also because of the purchase of the S-400 uh, uh, missile system uh, in defiance of, uh, of, of the United States. So uh, there are many reasons why the U.S. should sanction Turkey, economic sanctions on Turkey. Uh, and we should do it this month before the, before the November election. Well, well Mehran Tumajian, Western Region Director of um, Armenian Assembly of America. Uh, thanks for being with us, and uh, we appreciate your input. Thank you, Nima. It was a, a pleasure to be on. Hopefully, we can be on uh, and talk about uh, uh, the, the you peace. Know, much, much better things and peace.